And he said, the only thing I need changed in this for the most part is instead of 1,500 community mobilizers, let's aim for 3,000. And I almost threw up. (laughs) 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 We had like 25 days till election day. And I remember my operations director and I looked at each other and we're like, how in the world are we going to get 3,000 people in this program? Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Today's guest is Zoe Stein, a campaign staffer who's passionate about organizing civic engagement and climate justice. Zoe was recently the Community Mobilization Program Director for John Ossoff's Senate race for the runoff in Georgia. We had a good conversation about her career so far and how she helped put together a multi-thousand person mobilization team in very little time to help win that race. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Zoe Stein, formerly of Ossoff for Senate. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Zoe, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah. Hello, everybody. Um, My name is Zoe Stein. I was most recently the Community Mobilization Program Director for John Ossoff's Senate race for the runoff. I have a passion for climate activism and really found a home in political campaign organizing. And I live in Phoenix. So that's where I currently am. Apologies for any background noise. Did you grow up in, in that state? That is a great question. So I've actually been in Phoenix for the better part of a decade. I came out here when I was 17 to go to college and I fell in love with Arizona. Arizona State University has like the first school of sustainability in the country. And I knew I wanted to do something at the intersection of helping people, but without it being at the expense of the climate. At the time, there weren't a lot of programs that let you focus on on that intersection. So the I found the school and it was very much a no-brainer, but I realized that Arizona Arizona, unlike New York, did not have an incredible resiliency plan for 2050 and that there was so much work to be done to make the state of Arizona just a better environment to grow to grow up and have a family and and live up like a prosperous, sustainable life. So the type of change I really wanted to see in the world was that. And I thought that the opportunity space to make that meaningful you know, investment in my community was here. And I've been out in Arizona ever since. I've moved around a bit for campaigns, but home base is definitely Phoenix. Before you came to Arizona State at 17, where had you grown up? Westchester, New York. Political family? Not really. My parents were, you know, we were always Democrats. It was something I knew, but it didn't really have a deeper meaning than that. 
I didn't actually really get too heavily involved in campaigns until I was in college. There was a woman that worked in my department at the School of Sustainability. Uh, her name is Lauren Cuby. Uh, she's a, a mentor and a role model of mine, but she was on the Tempe City Council and I needed an internship to graduate from my undergraduate degree. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do the internship in, but I knew that Lauren Cuby, this council member, was a pretty big champion for sustainability principles at the local government level. So so I went and talked to her and I asked her if I could maybe be her intern. Uh, it was a pretty informal ask. And she was very excited. She, she really likes working with students and was overwhelmingly enthusiastic about this, like this partnership, this arrangement. So I be quickly became her intern and it was actually like a complete whirlwind of an experience. At the time, she was trying to pass a single use plastic bag ban in the city of Tempe along with something called energy benchmarking. And the whole idea of the energy benchmarking marking is that if you want to reduce your energy use as a city or as a building, you can't manage what you don't measure. Um, like if you're going to be on a budget, right, and you have a certain amount, amount of money you're trying to spend, if you don't count how much money you're spending, it's, it's harder to do that. But these were two things she was very passionate about. And the state legislature actually, uh, it's a Republican majority, and they preempted her on both of these bills. She was actually quite a target for preemption at the state level. So in Arizona, we have a ban on banning plastic, and they banned the idea of energy benchmarking at the time. Time, and our city wasn't able to do it. And I had no idea that, that the legislature was such a powerful body. And, you know, in Arizona, you hear the phrase local control, that we like local control, uh, except that appears to not be true when we're trying to pass some really innovative climate solutions. So watching Lauren fight as such a champion for some of these, these values that I knew, like I hold to be true and policies that could help put us towards a more equitable climate future, uh, be stopped by people that were elected to office, I learned by like as few as a dozen votes. It became quite clear to me that local politics was an incredible intervention point. And I did a bit of a pivot and started spending a lot more time. And, you know, fast forward a couple of years, I ended up managing her reelection to the city council where she had a sweeping victory. She was the only candidate to run on a sustainability platform. And, you know, about 50% of our volunteers didn't vote in the 2016 election prize. So her election was um, 2017, 2018 was an off-cycle municipal race, but a bunch of the people that we got involved in the city council race hadn't voted in 2016. And, you know, 80% of the people that volunteered on our campaign had never knocked a door before, but they were really excited and motivated to make this meaningful climate change in their community. And they realized that really every vote counts. And it was, it was a fantastic opportunity that started with an internship to get swept up into politics. And I've been doing campaigns ever since. I'm trying to figure out what the rationale for not allowing energy benchmarking would be. What can you explain that? Yeah. So I'm definitely not as much of an expert on this issue as uh, many colleagues of mine that I work with, but you know, there's a lot of special interest down at the legislature and a lot of corporate PAC money and a lot of, you know, energy groups that conserving energy is not in the interest of their shareholders. And in preemption is, it, it's a really toxic uh, mentality to have. Preemption for good isn't terrible, but preemption for bad, for not even allowing you to measure, it just seems like it's hard to wrap your mind around it. It just seems wrong. It is. And I, I mean, I think a lot of it, it's, it's not like this, like policymaking is done in good faith, right? I mean, they're looking at who's proposing it and what cities are doing it. Tempe's a blue city. Lauren Cuby's a progressive champion. So I don't actually think there is a lot of interest in having 
like like a nuanced and intellectual conversation about what is best for energy users in the state of Arizona. It was more so a, a you know a, a power grab opportunity and. and yeah. Um, how did you hook up with Next Gen America? Lauren QB City Council race um, ended around, I think it was March 14th was our election. And I started with Next Gen literally the next day. We were able to build such a powerful field program on the city council race where we were engaging, like I mentioned, like we, we had more than 20 people showing up to these canvases every weekend. So Next Gen, we came to Arizona for 2018 to do meaningful voter registration efforts uh, across the state. And the state director at the time, her name was Jalakoy Solomon. She's an incredible woman. She was connected to me as someone that was working on this local race that had this like pretty massive grassroots like movement of young people getting involved for the first time. Uh, we really hit it off. And then uh, the rest is history. I started with Next Gen that within the week of Lauren's race ending and we were able to register like 12,500 voters across the state on more than 22 campuses. And it was really incredible. You know, I think most people really do want to be involved in their community and make a difference and have a way to have their voice heard. I think that we don't really have a space right now in society for nuanced conversation about civics and what what participating in this process looks like. And once you can create that space in a way that's really easy for people to understand and to enter and to get involved, they do. Uh, and that's what we did with NextGen. We wanted to make politics accessible and we wanted it to be something that you, it's not for a specific type of person, it's for everybody. Like, do you live in a community? Are you, like, do you have, like, things that you care about, then then this is a team for you. I uh, talked to the sort of higher ups in Next Gen. How did it feel like as an organization? Did they treat you well from the top down? How did it run? Uh, I, I had a really awesome experience with Next Gen. I think that we were doing a pretty crazy thing. The goal was to build capacity in a state that historically hadn't seen that type of investment in young voters. We asked a lot of our team, you know, it was very much a shoot for the moon, hit the stars. It is so exciting to see so many of our former 2018 organizers running campaigns now. I mean, I'll give you one example. Ephraim Infante was our organizer on the west side of Phoenix. She is now the deputy DA director at the Arizona Democratic Party, and she was the campaign manager for Christine Marsh's race. And she actually flipped a legislative Senate seat in Arizona. Um, LD28 went from red to blue. And that is in no small part to the incredible organizing work of Ephraim, who was able to cut our teeth in our program. So I I think overall, it was an incredible organization. I think they did such meaningful work that continues to, you know, show and produce results this cycle and for future cycles to come. What was the next move for you? So I actually ended up taking a, a leave of absence from grad school once I was working on my city council race. I, you know, decided that I, there was no way I could focus on doing a master's when we had midterm elections coming up. So once I was that campaign manager, I just took a leave of absence, did midterms. And then once the 2018 election was over, I decided to go back to school and finish my degree. I did that. It was, it was quite an experience. Uh, it was in sustainability. And once that was over, I decided, okay, it's time for me to get back involved. You know, we have a lot of work to continue to do when it comes to training Arizonans on how to be involved in elections. So I ended up at the, as the training manager at the Democratic Party, where I was able to travel around the state and meet some of our local leaders and write curriculum. It was a very fun experience. And when I was on that team, I ended up getting a call from Elizabeth Warren's campaign asking if I'd be interested in joining as a training director for helping the senator hopefully become president, which unfortunately did not happen. But one thing led to another and it was my and then I packed up my bags and moved to Missouri. 
just talking to you on the phone, it seems like you have a good personality for training <laughs> and, and an energy and an enthusiasm that serve you well. It does. I think that the attitude you bring to a space is, is so unbelievably important to what you're able to get out of an organizing effort. This is something I like think holds true for all of my experiences and campaigns. Uh, one of the things that really bothered me in college when I would show up to a space that was a political space, whether it was young Democrats, like insert any political group here, but it felt like there was this club and I wasn't in it. I mean, and there literally it was a club, but you know, I wouldn't necessarily understand the references they were making from two cycles ago for the Democratic primary challenger that didn't make it. Or I didn't know like this elected office, you know, had this staffer in it. This is a field that turns over very fast for for a lot of different reasons. But a lot of people, they want to feel included and they want to feel welcomed and they don't like feeling dumb. And when you walk into a space and you're made to feel like you don't belong or people aren't going out of their way to tell you that you do belong, you know, there becomes a laundry list of reasons why you don't go back. And I think that like for a progressive movement, that is just like such a loss to us. So one of the things I think is very important in this type of work is that we we always are being inclusive. We're always being very kind and warm. And, you know, you, we create a persona that... Uh, is genuine and also inviting and that people, you know, they interact with you and think like, that was great. I want to do more of this. We are always growing and learning and there's different ways to do that, but it's, I think it's very important. <laughs> Doing that time working at the Arizona Dems as a training person, what did you learn from that? What did you learn about the types of people that need to be trained or want to be trained? I think it doesn't matter how many years you've been engaged in working in politics. Everyone who walks into the room has walked into that room for a reason, and it's our job to hear them out, and it's our job to make this a space that they want to stay in. I think that our diversity is our strength, and it also means that we need to work really hard to make sure that we stay a big tent, genuinely, and we invite all different types of people. I mean, I was working with some students as young as 15 and some precinct captain leaders in their 90s, and it was important to me that the tools that we were using, the methods of communication that we were um, introducing to people that that everyone felt like that was something that would work for them. And sometimes that means you have different types of tools and you have different ways of communicating with different folks. And like, that's a training director's job is to make sure that there's different types of learners and you're meeting them where they're at. My understanding is that working for a state party or the national party uh, can be a challenging job. Um, those parties, they have some bureaucracy. They have people who are set in their ways. They also serve a really important role. You know, what was your experience like? So being completely forthcoming, I would say my time at the Arizona Democratic Party at that moment, it was not the favorite time in my career. I think I went into it very, very, you know, bushy tailed and bright eyed and ready to do a lot of the exciting work that keeps me in this space. And I think that it was met with a little bit of resistance. I think that a lot of people in a lot of roles uh, that have been there for a while are under a tremendous amount of stress. And being Democrats and being a big tent means that there's a lot of different types of people that we need to take into consideration and stakeholders at the table when it comes to making decisions. And like any organization that's very large with a lot of pressure on it, there's bureaucratic red tape, there's you know, decisions that are made like that for, for internal and external politics alike, that doesn't change the fact that the overall mission and values of the organization are in line with mine, which is that we are fighting to have a better Arizona that represents everyone with elected leaders that care about 
all people, regardless of gender or race or socioeconomic status, everyone in Arizona deserves a representative that cares about them, that is looking out for their, their best interest. However, I think that, you know, that's a hard task to bring all these people together with a lot of different. It's, incre- it's an incredibly hard task. And I imagine that, that running a state party and balancing all the interests and all the cranky people and, uh, you know, it can't be easy. I'm sure it wasn't for those that were in charge. I'm very excited about some of the changes I've seen coming out of the Arizona Democratic Party. Um, I think that there is a renewed sense of enthusiasm and energy and different types of expertise being brought to the table. And I am thrilled to see what the, what type of campaign, the coordinated campaign runs in 2022. At the time that I was there, it was a little bit different. Um, when I ended up getting a call from Elizabeth Warren's campaign asking if I wanted to, to apply to join the team. And I was very uh, over the moon about such an opportunity to work for um, someone like Senator Warren. Let me ask you about that. Whenever you approach the next job with a lot of idealism, like you did the Arizona party, uh, then there's also the reality of it. What was the reality of the Warren campaign job? I think the Warren campaign job absolutely, you know, met, met my expectations and it's, it's innovation and it's excitement and their flexibility and creativity. I will also say I was not the only person from the Arizona Democratic Party asked to apply for the Warren campaign. There were three of us that were asked that worked at um, the state party at the time. A lot of young talent left at the same time. And I think that young talent leaving was a little bit of a wake up call in some regards. But on Elizabeth Warren's campaign, I felt very much empowered and encouraged to try try all the cool and creative ideas we had to bring more people into politics and bring more people into, into our campaign efforts. What do you think was the idea or program or practice that you were most taken with that the Warren campaign engaged in? For me, it was that we put training first. I actually don't know of another campaign, like whether it's uh, presidential or another level, that had such an emphasis. I mean, we had a national training director. We had training desks. uh, Every state had a training director. And we were very much encouraged to both meet people where they're at and help build our staff skill set. Because at the end of the day, regardless of what happened, we were going to produce an incredible army of young organizers and volunteer leaders that were here to do the hard work all the way through the 2020 cycle, regardless of whatever candidate got the nomination. That was really inspiring. I mean, every volunteer leader that we were able to like have joined the team, uh, I couldn't have done this work without them. I mean, from Kansas and Missouri, there was about... 10, 10 or 15 incredible people I still stay in touch with today that, I mean, from driving vans from Kansas and Missouri into Iowa to help with the caucus, to voter registration drives later on, to, to the work they're doing now in Kansas to, to help push or protect reproductive rights. I mean, it was incredible. It was incredible that it was also my job to invest in these local leaders and our organizers. The Warren campaign, there was a point or two where it looked like she might be the one to take the nomination. And there were certainly a point or two where that hope diminished or, or ultimately evaporated. What was that emotional roller coaster like for you? Being completely honest, um, I, I mean, I think I knew it was a long shot. 
for the reasons I think she's such a beautiful politician, I think are hard to communicate to an average voter. Like, it's my understanding that when a voter goes to the voting booth, you know, there's 30 seconds of headspace you have that they're thinking about your candidate and you control 15 seconds of that narrative. Elizabeth Warren is so thoughtful and she lives in the nuance and she doesn't do things to put her name on them. She does them because they're the right thing to do. For all of these reasons, I think it's really tough to communicate to a really large electorate. She was not an ally to corporate America and to Wall Street. Uh, so there was a huge incentive to, to make sure that she didn't win. And, you know. Do you think if everybody knew what you knew, they would have voted for her? Yes. I, yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> you drank the Kool-Aid there. I, Elizabeth Warren is my hero. And <laughs> I'm sure that if everybody took the time to, uh, to learn more about her, she, I think also if we had ranked choice voting, I think Elizabeth Warren would be president. <laughs> Well, she's certainly a great senator. And it, from my experience in Kansas and Missouri, she was everyone's second choice. Uh, and in Arizona, you know, I heard a lot of people say, I love her. She'd be my pick, but I don't think she'll win. And I think they said that for a lot of reasons. But I think if they weren't, if they weren't voting as a pundit and they were voting as a voter, I think, you know, I think, I think it may look different. I just am so grateful every morning to the work that was done by, you know, thousands of organizers across this country that we wake up with a Biden administration. I think when you're somewhere between mid-teenage years and mid-20s, the first candidate for president that you really fall in love with, it's a big event. It's almost like a first love affair in life. For me, it was Bernie Sanders. I remember not speaking to my parents for weeks because they wouldn't vote for Senator Sanders in 2016. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. It's it's also interesting that you switched because a number of people, quite a fair number of people switched from Sanders to Warren. If you fell in love with Bernie a few years before, why didn't you stay with him? Because I think Elizabeth Warren really encompassed for me what it means to be a leader that can build consensus and move the ball forward. I think that while we always want to be as idealistic as possible, I think at the end of the day, people are suffering. And some help is better than no help. And I think Elizabeth Warren has such an incredible track record of getting things done. It was a very easy decision. I mean, her being able to create the CFPB without even being elected to office is, is a crazy and amazing story. But I also think that, well, there's many reasons I, I love Senator Warren. But one of the coolest points to me about her campaign was of all the primary candidates that were running. And if you'll recall, for a hot minute, there was like 150. But um, Elizabeth Warren's campaign was the only place I saw both Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton staffers from 2016 working side by side, united under one candidate to get things done. Uh, it was an incredible HQ team. And it just really showed me like what what unity in our party can look like. I mean, if there's any two people that you know have different difference in a certain opinions, it's former Hillary and former Bernie staffers. On Elizabeth Warren's campaign, it was a it was a clearly united team, and it was it was just so cool. Yeah, that is cool. You spent a little time with organizing together 2020. Yeah, I did. I was the deputy director in Arizona, uh, organizing director uh, before I jumped on a congressional race. And what did that mean to you? I think organizing Terror 2020 was a really interesting uh, experiment that came about at a crazy time in our country's history. I mean, it, COVID was just getting 
very, very severe with lockdowns in all states. We had a bunch of young staff that just came off of all these different primaries. But I think ultimately organizing together did exactly what it needed to do. I had many organizing together alumni come with me to my congressional race. And it taught us how to, in a much lower stakes arena, uh, work with and train volunteers virtually to plug them into candidate campaigns shortly after. So it let my my entire organizing team on Hero Tipperneni's congressional race got to cut their teeth and try and try things in pilot programs that some of them worked, some of them didn't work. We got to do it at OT. And then once we jumped on Hero's race, it was like a smooth, it was smooth sailing. It was a beautiful organizing program. And I'm I'm really grateful that we had that that test run. Yeah. I hear the enthusiasm. <laughs> you spent the rest of that cycle I was then employed through the Arizona Democratic Party again, but specifically for AZ06, which was Hero Tipperneni's congressional race. Yeah. That one, how'd she do? So <laughs> it was a really tough race. It was an R plus nine district. We did extremely well. I think my field team, there's, I don't know what else our field team could have done. I mean, you know, there was a global pandemic and we had a brilliant, incredible ER doctor and the person we were running against, the incumbent David Schweikert, uh, you know, had 11 ethics violations, like condemned by both Democrats and Republicans in the House. When presented with the chance between someone who's committed crimes and an ER doctor, they went with David Schweikert. <laughs> that's, the, that's the world of polarized voting, right? That's it is. It is. It's it's super frustrating when the inferior candidate wins on the party label. Yeah, I mean, I, for my organizers, it was soul crushing. They have since recovered, but <laughs> <laughs> it defied a lot of logic. She he wouldn't debate her, but her answers to every question were so thoughtful and articulate. She, she Hero Tipperdani has a really incredible story about why she does this work or why she decided to move into the space of politics, which is as, as an ER doctor, there was two women that she ended up treating in a similar amount of time. One was uh, much wealthier than the other one and one had health insurance, as you can imagine, which, which of the two had health insurance, but they came in with a similar type of breast cancer. The woman who had the health insurance, she came in and uh, Hero was able to diagnose it. They treated it. She's fine to this day. The other woman uh, came in so late because she couldn't afford the medical bills. By the time she came in, she lit up like a Christmas tree and it was it was a terminal illness. Unfortunately, that woman did not make it. And to, to Hero, to Dr. Vernani, that was like such a preventable disaster, right? Like there is no reason she couldn't have saved that woman's life other than that she came in too late because she couldn't afford the treatment. And I think that we need more politicians that are truly like thinking about how we have a more equitable and just society so that we can we can use the treatments and the cures that we already have and know exist to to, to help people, to like to to save lives. That really motivates me to do this work. One of the reasons, and you know, I hate to bounce back and forth here, but I pivoted from sustainability to politics was that I had a professor who also made this switch. Once Trump won the election, he came into our lab and he goes, who the fuck cares about water solutions? It was a water solutions research lab when we have politicians that don't believe that there's a drought. So I live in the desert. Water security is very important. And he's right. We know a million and a half ways to cut water use transformationally. That means by more than 50%. And we have no political will to get it done. And that's not because we don't have incredible people that can solve these problems. It's because they're not in office. So... For me, it's very fulfilling to get to work in a, in a space where I help put them in office so that they can make these good decisions. Yeah. So the reason that you came to me as a guest 
for the show, as I think you know, is that Aaron Strauss, who used to run the Analyst Institute, said to me, you did an amazing job helping to run the Ossoff runoff. That race had the eyes of the nation on it. It helped determine the control of the Senate. And it was close. And and that relational turnout campaign that you helped work on sounds like it was really important. Tell me about how you landed that job and what you did there. Yeah. So it was an incredible program. And I have so many people to thank that were such pivotal and incredible, like in, uh, instrumental partners in it. There's actually a study on the Analyst Institute that you can see where the relational program. So my program plus the volunteer side of things run by Davis Leonard had about a 3.8% impact on turnout, which is absurd. That is craziness and so cool. But it was a community mobilizers program and it very much was mobilizing instead of organizing. Um, you know, a lot of tremendous work has been done in Georgia for years, overwhelmingly thanks to the black women that have been working and putting in this effort for, for decades. Um, and our program, because we had the benefit of having national funding was to just push us over the edge, like, Lock us in, get it done, cross the line. And we were fortunate enough to, to have that creative freedom to really like try something new, hoping it works. And it worked. Um, the program itself, we employed 2,888 community mobilizers to relationally turn out their own friends and family to vote. We paid them $500 a week. We did this with the help of an incredible team. So I had four deputy directors, a recruitment director named Darren Owens, who is from Georgia, along with his entire team that were Georgians. We had four recruitment managers that helped get this job posting out and about. Uh, we had a train director, Megan Papalardo. Um, she had four training managers under her and an incredible operations department, but Shivani Chakrabarty was the director. She had several deputies. We ended up having like 26 operations associates that helped us interview. We did 11,000 interviews to get, we had 12, we had 12,000 applicants. It was nuts, but it really also proved this theory of change of when you meet people where they're at and you treat them with respect and you give them an opportunity to get involved, they want to get involved. One of the guiding principles of the entire program was that nobody, and I, I said this daily to my team and, you know, they felt the same way. No one should interact with our program or any staff on our program and leave that conversation feeling lesser than or less qualified to vote or like they, that they don't know enough to participate in our democracy in this runoff election. Like it was extremely important that every person that interacted with us left feeling like, I am a qualified voter and my vote matters and it's my job to not just vote, but to bring my friends and family. This program also wouldn't have been possible without uh, Keenan Petoni, who was my boss, and John Ossoff, who like both pushed for this very hard. It was crazy. It was a highlight of my entire life. <laughs> Say again, who was your boss? Keenan Petoni. Who is he and what did he do? Keenan is the senior advisor to John Ossoff. So it, he reported to John and he helped with, uh, he was you know, one of the key players on John's 2017 race for... So what, what were you tasked to do? So initially, I was on the team to help with voter registration. David Poyer was my boss from the DCCC for the AZ06 race. We ran an extremely strong race in Arizona for Hurl. Uh, he gave me a call when that was over asking if I would be interested in moving to Georgia that week to be his deputy. As you know, the voter registration deadline was in December, so it came and went, and then we were moving people around in the program to put them where they mo were most needed. So Keenan called me into his office with David uh, and was basically like, 
you look like you have some background in community mobilization and organizing. Like, talk to me about your experience. I'd like to do a community mobilization program. And I basically went full Zoe, which is like talking a million miles a minute. <laughs> so excited about the opportunity to engage new people in this work. And I love the concept of going full Zoe. <laughs> Thank you. I was just so unbelievably excited about being given this space to do a program I've been like dreaming about for years, which is let's meet people where they're at. Like, is it local coffee shops? Is it local bars? Is it schoolyards? I don't care. Is it like the PTA room? Whatever it is, there's all these people we know care about specific issues because they self-organize there, right? Like the people that are at the park care about public spaces. The people that are at, you know, the PTA meeting care about education. And we can plug all of them into this race. So Keenan gave me a few guiding principles for the program that were extremely helpful. Um, they were, this needs to be huge. It's going to work at scale. So when you are given an opportunity to make a decision, you have to go with the more simple approach because we're talking about having thousands of people be part of this program. And uh, when he said thousands of people, I think my like eyes almost fell out of my head. You know, this was a program he said John Ossoff wants to spend millions of dollars on. He really believes that, you know, this is something that it, it's going to impact every Georgian. And I don't mean to speak for John. This is like, you know, my recollection of months ago, but uh, Keenan made it very clear that like every Georgian that can be part of this election needs to be part of this election. Like, not only is it the right thing to do, it's how we win. It's, I mean, I could go on and on. So he asked me to write a proposal. My operations director and I were up all night. We like wrote two plans for different quantities of money. Like one was like a $2 million plan. And then the other was supposed to be like a $5 million plan. Just like put it out there, pitch it to the team. Uh, they decided they wanted to go with the, with the biggest plan we could. It ended up being somewhere in the middle of that. And he said, the only thing I need changed in this for the most part is instead of 1,500 community mobilizers, let's aim for 3,000. And I almost threw up. (laughs) (laughs) We had like 25 days till election day. And I remember my operations director and I looked at each other and we're like, how in the world are we going to get 3,000 people in this program? Um, But, you know, uh, necessity is the mother of innovation. And I had a really great team that was willing to go but it sounds like you fell a little short of that with only 2,888. So 2,888 went through the traditional onboarding that we built. Um, there were a, s- a couple hundred more that were part of like another GOTV oh, effort. <laughs> yeah. So we fell a little short, but we got pretty damn close. So, <laughs> so, so why do you need that many people? What, what are they doing? So this is the other thing that was Keenan said that was very, very important. If at any point we say, Let's ask the county parties for help with this recruitment. We've missed the mark completely. And I agree wholeheartedly. We were trying to include people in this program that otherwise would not be involved in politics at all for many different reasons. But this program was designed for lower efficacy voters, people that typically like, you know, their turnout score is is not over 50 percent. And there's a lot of reasons that that's true, whether it's because they're young, whether it's because they work six different jobs and they're not able to, you know, follow closely what CNN, MSNBC are saying or, you know, it's a little bit of a chicken and egg situation with turnout scores, too, because, you know, if you don't vote regularly, you don't get contacted by the campaigns. And if you don't get contacted by the campaigns, then you're not going to vote regularly. So this was an opportunity for us to totally flip that on its head and say, who is not engaged? Hi, do you actually want to join the team and be brought to the table as a meaningful stakeholder who's part of this effort? Um, and overwhelmingly, people said yes. And it was great. They were able to, so their job was to talk to their own friends and family, knowing that those are spheres or people and buckets that our campaign's not touching. Like, they're not seeing the TV ads. They're not getting the Facebook ads. They're not 
you know, you're not getting called by the organizers. So the other cool thing with relational, the most persuasive conversation is, a, is, is by someone you trust, right? Like a political ad is what, like the seventh most persuasive way to get you to vote for the candidate, something like that. Like a friend's a conversation with a friend, number one. So it was just, we were finding like our, we were making sure the messengers of, of our program were the right people to make sure that we had more people vote. You know, I think there's a lot of distrust when it comes to politicians for, for a lot of really legitimate reasons, but you know, we're working to change that. Was there any technology underpinning for this effort? I know that there's a lot of relational organizing tech out there. Um, for our program specifically, we used reach, which was perfect for what we needed. Um, I think that that, uh, Outreach Circle is another really incredible tool that uh, my partner, Dave Leonard, and I, we're actually doing relational consulting right now and that we're, we're talking to and really excited about introducing into some different programs. More than the tech, I think, is the training and the data visualization. So I would say our program was successful for two big reasons. It's that we had good managers and good data that we could understand. So Joshua Kravitz was our data director for the program, and he just has this incredible gift of you can speak organizer things to him, and he produces data visualization. That's what you asked for, and it's wild, and it's so amazing. But, you know, I mentioned this earlier in, the, in terms of training, but there are lots of different ways adult learners learn. There, there's not a one solution fits all. So, like, for myself, I'm very dyslexic. So, for me, you know, I can pull counts and cross tabs in van that that doesn't necessarily tell me what I need to know. So we created a dashboard, we call it the Kravitz board, and it showed us all of the work the mobilizers were doing. It's really important for someone to be a good manager that they they understand how they're measuring someone's success and they have the tools to apply that uh, that judgment fairly. So the Kravitz board, what it enabled our managers to do is look at like, how many people have they reached out to this week? Have they opened the app? what is the quality of the conversations that their mobilizers are having? So for example, do they have a vote plan? Did they ask them about John Ossoff, et cetera? And by having really clear expectations and a way to metabolize information that was very accessible, it made it really easy for these managers to do their job. So that was, that was just super critical. What else should people know about this effort that you haven't covered? I think that keep it simple, like can't be said enough. I can give a really good example from NextGen. When it comes to meeting people where they're at, it's really easy to tune politics out because you know you don't know enough. You know you should know more. But nobody likes to be made to feel like that or made to be feel like to feel dumb. And why why put yourself in a position for that to be how you feel unnecessarily? So if you're a lower efficacy voter, I'll take college students as the example here. When in 2018, we had a governor's race in Arizona. And, you know, there's one way you can talk to students on campus and say, are you voting in the governor's race? And they look at you a little bit like lost, like they kind of know there's a race, maybe they don't, but like they're embarrassed that they don't know. Uh, and they just like don't want to engage. But if you change how you're talking to them and instead start your sentence as follows, it's, hey, you may or may not know that there's a race. If you don't know, not your fault. Most people don't. But basically, if Arizona was a country, governor would be president. They can't do everything, but they can do a lot. And if you skip voting for the governor of Arizona, you're giving up your vote for president of our state. All of a sudden, it clicks, right? Like they understand there is an important election. They have a mental model for what that position does. And they realize that they have like, they have to participate. By not participating, they're foregoing an important decision. Just like that, they engage with you. It's like, you know, not to paint with a broad brush here, but there is ways to meet people where they're at. I think we often don't spend enough time on how we do that. I think it starts with training, but 
if there was anything to take away from the relational mobilizers program was if you want to engage, expand the electorate, paying people really helps. A lot of people would be more active in this work if they could afford to. Uh, secondly, you know, it's really important that you create an inclusive environment. And that begins with like the language that you're using and how you train your staff. And, you know, three, investing in people pays off. How much did you pay people? We paid people $500 a week to be community mobilizers. It's a fairly rare campaign that has those resources. Yes. I think you could have a similar level of engagement for not that quantity of money. I think that it was a guiding principle. Like one of the things John Ossoff ran on was jobs, right? His, his line was health, jobs, justice. And he was able to create so many jobs before even being elected to office. <laughs> <laughs> and we were able to redistribute millions of dollars of wealth back into, so 75% of folks in the program were African-American. As we know, the communities of color were disproportionately affected by COVID-19. It was actually a huge blessing and like very much in line with like our values as Democrats, but also the campaign to be able to, to help our community and to, to give that back. And it was a pretty awesome experience to really, you know, get to help people and bring them into the campaign at a really crazy time in, in our country. How did you celebrate the win? I, I sobbed. I just cried a lot. Of <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a video of me crying. Like the, the TV flipped to 50-50 and we were prepped to, you know, not know if we were going to win that night. And when we knew the last place to report was Atlanta, there's um, a friend of mine has a video. Of, I just start crying into like a puddle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So and then the next day I woke up and I was pretty traumatized from Arizona. So I was like, are we still winning? And they're like, we won. Because <laughs> on, on the congressional race, we actually lost slowly over like three days. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Politics is... Uh... It's a hard business, isn't it? It is. It's so, it, it can be so rewarding and so devastating, but I think you have to find the small wins. So like, for example, on the congressional race or even with next gen, right? Um, like we didn't win a governor's race in Arizona, but we won a Senate seat, but you know, it's seeing people learn that they themselves as individuals can have such a massive impact in like the world uh, by, by organizing and bringing more people into into civic engagement it's really special like your voice really does matter sometimes you have to learn how to use it teaching people that so powerful what zoe have you done since that election and what are you up to going forward so since that election, I was the campaign manager on a mayoral race in Cincinnati. Uh, it was a super long shot campaign. It was for a first time candidate. We were going up against three incumbents that have, some of them had been elected for as long as 30 years. Uh, he did not win, unfortunately, but it was a really awesome opportunity. Like I said, in finding the small victories to my staff got to build their skills and we got to uh, engage all these amazing high schoolers. By election day, we had almost 30 interns. So the race was in Cincinnati. So we had interns from Northern Kentucky and, and then a little bit North of Cincinnati as well. And all those kids are so excited to go make sure that we win that Senate race and win a governor's race there. And that's, that was very cool to, to have these skills be shared with others and continue to, to grow. And since that race, uh, so that race ended in May. I've been going pretty straight since uh, 2019 through this past May. So I took some time off and got to visit friends and my family back in New York. I haven't been home in two years, so I'm pretty excited to see my mom. <laughs> it's her birthday today, so she's. Uh, I see her in a uh, week. But but are you? Do you continue in this space? Do you? Oh, run absolutely. For office? Do you running for like, office? What? I used to think it was something I was interested in. 
the more I do this work, the more horrible it looks to be a candidate. And for anyone listening who wants to be a candidate, please run. We need more candidates. But I don't know if it's for me. I think getting good people elected is is very rewarding in and of itself. And I really enjoy it. And I think that my skill set very much lies on the campaign side, more so than on the policy side. But yes, the work continues. There's so much more to do. I think that we don't spend nearly enough time on focusing on local flipping local offices. So Davis, who is the digital organizing director from Ozov, as I mentioned, she's my partner. Her and I have been doing some relational consulting, uh, meeting with really awesome campaigns and C4 organizations to help them launch relational efforts. And it's incredible. I don't know if you've heard of doctors in politics, but they hope to be the Emily's list of the physician world. So they believe that progressive doctors belong in every room where decisions are being made about patient care, because right now they're not. But you know who is in that room? Pharmaceutical reps, uh, Republican doctors, insurance companies. And they want to change that by getting more physicians elected and getting them able to run. So we've been helping them out. They're incredible. It's been really fun to do these these spirit projects. <laughs> Is there a question that I should have asked that I didn't? I don't think so. If anyone uh, was lo- is looking to get in touch with me, I think Twitter DMs is the best way to do so right now. Uh, because I'm a climate activist at heart, my Twitter handle is Zoe underscore hugs underscore trees. So I just, <laughs> you, can, you can always reach me there. Well, it's been fun to talk to you. Thank you for um, the opportunity. It's been a pleasure. I saw that you talked to Anatole last week. He's awesome. Yes, he says he's an organizer's organizer. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I got to meet him through organizing together and it was he was so helpful. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. That was Zoe Stein. Zoe is at Zoe underscore hugs underscore trees on Twitter. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.